0: Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come through Mary. Jesus, we come before you as your beloved sons and daughters. I ask you, Jesus, to flood us, to fill us with a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit. I ask you to descend upon us now a spirit of wisdom, a spirit of revelation. Let this place be filled with your presence. Let these words be your words. Let them pierce our hearts. Let us be brought to a new level of intimacy with you. Where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in their midst. And you are in our midst. Open our minds, our hearts, and our bodies to receive you. We are yours. We surrender ourselves to you. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. So the document from which we're working this weekend or today is the apostolic letter antiquum ministerium the institution of the office of catechist and i just want to begin by pointing out some kind of obvious things but i think it's important that we realize the extent of a certain problem that we have in the church Basically, we're, we're losing people like crazy. We're hemorrhaging people like crazy. If you, th- if you were to find the statistics, and I don't have them here in front of me, if you were to have the statistics of those that were forming in our Catholic elementary scores, forming them for the sacraments, forming them for communion or confirmation, the number of those that would go on to then practice their faith in college and afterward is so incredibly low. So low, let's say best case scenario, 25%, but that's probably pushing it. If we were to look at forming our couples in marriage, the normal marriage prep program, again, I don't have exact statistics, but within five years, 25% of our marriages are failing in marriage prep. If we were to look at the number of Catholics that go to Mass in general, again, probably best-case scenario, 25%. Uh, Bishop Barron often uses this statistic. He said that about 75% of Catholics, whether they're going to church or not, don't believe that Jesus is up in that tabernacle with the little red light that signifies that his presence is here. Needless to say, there's just a lot of reasons for being a little bit discouraged as catechists. It's like, well, what are we doing here if I know that no matter what I pour in, we're just going to end up with more people leaving? The really great upside of all of this is because the bar has been set so low, we really can't but help but trip over it, right? If we try anything, we have nothing to lose, right? So we might as well shake things up a little bit. I uh, I think about even the example of Saint Paul, um, in in the Acts of the Apostles. I think around chapter 13 or so saint paul goes into athens and saint paul is a good communicator right he writes well he doesn't say that he speaks well but he must also speak well and he goes and he gives arguably his best catechesis that he could right he meets the people where they are he like walks around their temple he gets to know the culture a little bit and he speaks into their culture he really finds them where they are and then uses that as a launching point into an amazing catechesis on who Jesus was. But as soon as he says the word, who has Jesus, who has risen from the dead, they scoff at him and they say, yeah, we're not really interested right now. Come back later. And how discouraging that would have been to be St. Paul. Wow, I gave myself, I, I, I had an amazing lesson plan. Right? I had an amazing story, and I knew the people, I knew my audience, and I spoke super well. And out of that magnificent sermon, he only had a couple people that were interested in following Jesus. It's really interesting because you hear, so he goes from Athens, and then he goes into Corinth. And we don't have any letters of St. Paul to the Athenians, right? Right? because they didn't receive the gospel. We have two letters to the Corinthians because St. Paul shook it up a little bit, right? Something changed from his approach to Athens to Corinth. Of course, there's also the disposition of the people, right? We can't negate that. But I think St. Paul actually changed his strategy for how he was going to reach the people. And how do I know that? Because he actually tells us in 1 Corinthians what he changed. When I came to you, speaking to the Corinthians, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God in lofty words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and much fear not in strength and, like he said, amazing discourse. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is so important. He says... I came to you, Corinthians, and I changed my approach. I wasn't going to just give you a lot of really good talks, discourses, though, of course, it is important that we be able to explain our faith. No doubt about that. But he said, rather, I'm going to focus on the person of Jesus Christ and the power that is revealed through his cross and through the power of the Holy Spirit that has been poured into our hearts by baptism. Basically, he's saying, I'm tapping into the power of the spirit because I tried to do it my way and I tried to do it by human reason and it didn't work. It didn't bear fruit. And this is paired with, and we can talk about this later, this is paired with the fact that he lived with the Corinthians for a year and a half. It was not a flash in the pan. It was not, we met for eight weeks in a row for one time. It was, I spent an extended period of time and I shared life with you and you became dear to me and I became dear to you. We shared life together. So I think these are two really key components, the power of the Holy Spirit and not our own power and the power of shared life together. All right, so this is the model that I'm kind of holding up for all of us. I think in light of these very discouraging statistics that we are open, to trying something new, right? Are we open to trying something new? Why not? What have we got to lose? We, there are so many things in the church and in organizations that don't do very well. The reason why we do them is because, you can guess the line, we've always done it that way, right? How frustrating is that? Well, was it ever a good idea in the first place? Or maybe it was a good idea in different times and circumstances but as there is this this book that's kind of traveling like wildfire among the kind of the thinkers and the movers and the shakers of the Catholic Church it's called From Christistom to Apostolic Age. From Christistom to Apostolic Age. Most of what we presume about the parish and the church is coming from a presumption of we're living in a Christian culture and so we're operating out of a Christian culture. However, this is not a newsflash to anyone. We're not living in a Christian culture anymore. Quite the opposite. We are living in an apostolic age where it's presumed that there is much that is actually hostile to Christian morals and values or even human morals and values, not necessarily even Christian ones. So we cannot do the things that we have done just because we've always done them, because a lot of them came from times that were undergirded with Christian values that we do not have or are upheld in our society, in our time. So we need to shake it up. We need to shake it up. But the really fun thing is, if we're living in an apostolic age, then the gospel for us, of course, are the four gospels. But we need to look at the Acts of the Apostles, because that is the apostolic time, right? If we look at the Acts of the Apostles, then we're going to know how to minister in our time because it's very similar to what they were working with, a culture of death that was full of idolatry and the worship of false gods that didn't like Christians that were challenging their life centered on pleasure, basically. That was their time, and that is our time. So when we look at the... Acts of the Apostles, what do we see? Yes, they knew how to speak. They were able to give a reason for the faith and the hope that is within them, most certainly. But more than anything, they were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and they proclaimed with the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is what changed hearts. That is what moved hearts. And very often, The proclamation of the gospel was accompanied with signs and wonders that gave credibility to the proclamation of the gospel. We don't have just good ideas as Christians. We have the person of Jesus Christ first and foremost, but we also have the power of Jesus Christ within us. You will do these things that I have done, and you will do greater things than these. Basically, when I send upon you the Holy Spirit, these are Jesus's words. Jesus did some pretty cool things. And he said, you're going to do greater things than what I did. And just as in apostolic times, so now people are like, why do I know that you're what you're saying is true and not something else? Well, because what we say is actually accompanied with real power to change things, real power to transform lives. And I would say especially real power to heal the woundedness that is all around us. So much woundedness. There is a documentary that I recommend. It's called Revive. And it's basically this Holy Spirit evangelization team going into a very nominal Catholic high school in Michigan. And before they come in and do this all school presentation, they interview a number of kids. Tell me what you believe about God. And basically, it was a sign of the times. You know, yeah, God, uh, I mean, he, yeah, he's kind of out there, but he doesn't really have anything to do with my life. Uh, I don't really believe in God. I mean, what's the point? I mean, this is a Catholic school, but this is very symptomatic of what we would find in any of our Catholic schools right now, probably. And so the question becomes, well, what would it take for you to believe that Jesus is who he says he is or that God is who he says he is? And it always comes down to this. I don't know, maybe a sign or miracle or something, right? And so that's what they leave the conclusion as. And then they have this all-school assembly. And then they proceed to have powerful manifestations of healings and other signs that God is at work and the whole student body is flipped upside down, basically. And as they walked into the school and as they spoke to the camera, we set things up in such a way if God did not show up, it was going to be very embarrassing for us, right? And it would have been, right? Uh, the key turning point in the all-school assembly, of course, they did some icebreakers and things like that. And then they called out various things that they thought the Lord was going to heal in that, in that assembly. And then they had one, at a certain point, they had people come up and give testimony for what they had experienced, and one boy comes up, and he is not one that is going to be enthusiastic to jump in front of all of the whole student body and share what Jesus had done for him. But lo and behold, this guy that's kind of a wallflower comes up to the stage and says, yeah, um, I don't know how to really explain this, but I was born colorblind, and all of those banners in the back right now, I can see all those colors. (laughs) So colorblindness, that's hard for people to explain away. You know, we talk about, you know, I've shared with people, it's like, oh, well, this healing took place in this thing. And they're like, well, you know, the brain is a very powerful thing. It's like, yeah, 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 I know that. But like things are happening that you can't just think into existence. Right. God is actually at work. So there are so many stories I can share about really cool things that are happening, but ultimately it comes down to the Holy Spirit wants to do the heavy lifting. The Holy Spirit wants to do the heavy lifting. And even if we have the best crafted lesson plans, activities, and a program that in general is just top-notch, if it's not full of the Holy Spirit, it is for nothing, On the other side, this is encouraging for us, even if we're pretty ill-prepared, we feel like, who am I to be a catechist? We don't have the best program, the best parish, or the best resources at our disposal. But if we have the Holy Spirit, that makes up for everything, and it will be fruitful. And it will bear fruit in the lives of those that we minister to. What a great consolation. We don't have to do it ourselves. In fact, one of the key obstacles to having the Spirit more powerfully work in our life, one of the key obstacles is our grasping for control. And because we do have so many resources and so many programs and so many things that supposedly will get the results that we want, we latch on to these instead of on the power Of Jesus and Him crucified, and the Holy Spirit that He has poured out upon us, that He breathed upon the apostles, and that He sent down upon Mary and the apostles and the disciples that were gathered on the day of Pentecost. We are living in the time of Pentecost. You know, in the um, in the extraordinary form in the Latin Mass before 1962, there was no ordinary time. Every Sunday after Pentecost was a certain number Sunday. After Pentecost, so the 10th Sunday ordinary time or whatever, for example, would be the 10th Sunday after Pentecost. And you'd wear red because we're living in the time of Pentecost. And that is still so true today. Pentecost isn't something that just happened 2000 years ago. It began 2000 years ago, but we're now starting to see a revitalization on this emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Because we tried to do it our way and it's not working. And so a key to growing in this capacity to be a vessel of the Holy Spirit is surrendering control. And this is why I preach on surrender over and over and over again. So I'm already speaking long here. Um, I'm going to maybe speak... Well, who knows how long it'll take. But I would like to lean into what are some obstacles in our own hearts that are preventing the Holy Spirit from doing what he wants in our hearts first so that we can be in a position to be able to be vessels of the Holy Spirit for other people because we cannot give what we do not have. If we want people's lives, we want these kids and these adults, these couples that are going to get married to be aflame with the Holy Spirit they will not be if we are not. We, they will not be set aflame if we are not first set aflame. So I just want to talk about a few of the obstacles that are the main things, why we are not set aflame. The first one is the most obvious. Jesus began his public ministry saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is relationship with Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so our sin, apparently, is the biggest obstacle, and that's why Jesus spoke primarily about that, and John the Baptist, too. Repent, repent, repent. If we don't have sin, then we don't need a Savior. If we are a society that claims there is no wrongdoing, even though we know there is, we're always claiming other people are doing wrong, but we don't see any wrongdoing in ourselves, right? We need to repent. We need to be people of repentance. And I challenge my parish this all the time. And I think they're getting sick of it. But until all of them are doing it, I'm going to keep talking about it, right? We need to be going to confession regularly. And when I say regularly, I, I would say monthly. If not, yeah, monthly, maybe every two months. We need to be repenting on a regular basis. I go to confession A lot not because I'm necessarily sinning in really huge ways but because the more I go the more I realize the Lord wants to go deeper and he wants to heal even the more subtle things and so among the saints it's not like they were going to confession to confess a bunch of mortal sins but even the thought of committing a venial sin was so abhorrent to them because they didn't want to do anything that would offend the love of God that had been poured into their hearts The first obstacle is sin. And so we will have an opportunity to go to confession today. Um, But even in this moment, and this is why it's important that you have your journals, because I am covering a lot of bases here, but I really want the Holy Spirit to be the protagonist in drawing out that which needs to be addressed. And this is what I would also encourage you to do with your students. Allow the Holy Spirit, in the context of silence, to bring to the surface that which he wants to address. So in this moment, I'm going to invite us to say a prayer all together, and I'm just gonna leave a pocket of silence, and then we're gonna move on to the next obstacle. And so the prayer that I'm gonna have us all say is Jesus, show me where I need to repent. Okay, so just have that in your mind. Let's say that together. Jesus, show me where I need to repent. This might be a little bit of a blow to our pride, but it's amazing how quickly an image might come up or a memory might come up or something that actually does need to be healed. And if you didn't have anything come up, that's fine, too. That's why we do have examinations of conscience to help stir up awareness of where we want, where the Lord wants to heal us. And so I encourage you before you go to confession To say that prayer holy spirit show me what i need to confess show me where i need to repent show me where there's an obstacle because i don't want to have any obstacle to your love the second obstacle and this is huge when it comes to healing ministry um, we don't see more miracles taking place when we pray for people because we or they not not necessarily this is the only cause but it is a huge obstacle if we hold on to unforgiveness in our hearts, that's a huge obstacle. And that's why Jesus was so emphatic on, unless you forgive, you will not be forgiven. Those are strong words, but how often do we think about those words? Even right after Jesus gives us the Our Father in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, after the Our Father, if you read it, there's like two, more, two or three more lines emphasizing Unless you forgive, you will not be forgiven. If you forgive, you will be forgiven. In case you forgot that part in the Our Father that we say every single time, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Oh my, we better watch out when we pray that prayer because that is powerful. And so often we don't live it. And when I talk about forgiveness, and I share this with my parish all the time too, I'm not talking about having a good feeling towards someone that has hurt us, nor am I saying forgetting what has been done against us. And nor am I saying that they didn't do something wrong or else we wouldn't need to forgive them. What I am saying is the choice to say out loud, and this seems elementary, but it's important, the choice to say out loud, Jesus, I forgive them. And then to seal that forgiveness with a blessing, Jesus, bless them. I cannot tell you how many times I've done this in confession and in individual meetings with people, and it by itself transforms lives, transforms hearts, and all of a sudden there's movement, and the Holy Spirit can come in, and other things start happening. It is so beautiful. And so I'm going to have the Holy Spirit, again, inspire us right now to show us who we need to forgive because we've all been hurt right but we may not have always forgiven and so the prayer will be Jesus show me who I need to forgive so let's say this together Jesus show me who I need to forgive with this person's face or this memory or this person's name coming to our mind, invite us to pray together this prayer, which is, Jesus, by your power, I forgive them. Jesus, by your power, I forgive them. So we don't have a whole lot of time to delve into this, but if I was meeting with someone individually, I would say, Go ahead and say the person's name and say the hurts that you've received or that you perceived that you have received from that person. And then just go down the line, Jesus, I forgive my mom for neglecting me, for not saying that I love you, for, you know, whatever it is. That's not necessarily true. It's an example. But just going down the line, saying their name, saying the offense and choosing to forgive in that context is unbelievably powerful unbelievably powerful and there's something to saying it out loud because it's the evil one who has power over anything that has not yet been forgiven anything that is not yet forgiven is still in his domain and he's able to manipulate that and to use it against us and in that relationship and so that the biggest obstacle to relationship with Jesus and his love which is also experience in relationship with others is unforgiveness So I encourage you, again, in your own time of reflection, Jesus, show me who else I need to forgive, because we probably all have more than one. The third obstacle, and I'm sorry there's so many, but we tend to find ways to put up obstacles to Jesus' love. But another big stone in this wall around our hearts is that desire for control. The desire for control. Nothing steals our peace faster than grasping for control, because especially when a pandemic comes around, we realize just how totally out of control things are. And the pandemic was so good for us because we never had control. But before the pandemic, we had the illusion of control. And without, and with the pandemic, all the illusion was taken away. And that led to people having some real identity crises because they thought they were in control when they really weren't and if Jesus wasn't at the foundation of their life everything else that they discovered was built on sand and started to be washed away and so I just want us to pray right now um, just a simple surrender prayer and so I'll say a line and then you just say it after me and it's a dangerous prayer but I, I encourage you to um, to say it with me, because if you give Jesus permission to take control, he will, he will. And things, uncomfortable things might happen, but it's, again, only uncomfortable because he wants to reveal in order to heal. Just as you go to the doctor, he cannot heal you unless you show where it hurts, right? But Jesus, if you give him If you give him control, he's going to reveal things in your life, in your heart, in your family, in your relationships that need to be healed. But that is only so that he can heal them. It's vulnerable, but he showed the way by first being vulnerable and naked on a cross. Because the way of nakedness and vulnerability before God is the way to our healing. So I'd invite you to say this prayer after me. Jesus, in your name, Jesus, in your name I renounce the, spirit of, control. I renounce the spirit, of control. spirit of control. Spirit of control, I command you to leave me in the name of Jesus Christ and to go to the foot of his cross. And to go to Jesus I surrender myself to you. Jesus I surrender myself. To you. Jesus I surrender control to you. Jesus I surrender control to you. Jesus I surrender my family to you. Jesus I surrender my family to you. Jesus I surrender all of my anxieties to you. Jesus I surrender all of my anxieties to you. You take care of them. You take care of them. Amen. Amen. Woo. That is powerful. That is powerful. And if you're anything like me, as soon as you give away control, you find little ways to start clawing it back, right? Because it's uncomfortable. And that's why I'm such a huge proponent of the, this little yellow sheet of paper that I talk about all the time. I've made thousands of copies of this. It's called the Novena of Surrender. And so at the beginning of every day, I say that at least 10 times, Jesus, I surrender blank to you. Jesus, I surrender this talk to you. Jesus, I surrender this retreat to you. And so at least at one point in my day, I've already surrendered control and given Jesus permission to do what he wants with the day. And that makes life so much more enjoyable because then we can just show up, do the best we can, and he takes care of the rest. Whew, what a relief, right? He wants to do the heavy lifting, but it's our Sees trying to grasp control that is getting in his way of providing for us. The, The other obstacle that we can have in our relationship with God, and Jesus talks about this all the time too, is a lack of faith. Lack of faith. Basically, he says multiple times, if you ask this with faith, Even for this tree to be uprooted or for this mountain to be moved, it will. Whoa. I really am much more comfortable with a metaphorical interpretation of that, right? Wow, yeah. If we believe Jesus can do some great things invisibly in such a way that we don't have to actually believe that he has power over the external circumstances of our life, right? We want to explain it away. We want to put it in this, what I call, the God box. Here is... Where I put God, nothing happens that is outside of the box. It is predictable. It is orderly. It is understandable. And it is lifeless and utterly boring. Okay? That is our God box. And so what God is trying to do with me, and I think what he's trying to do with all of us, is to blow up our God box. Blow up the God box because he's outside of the box. He's No way can he contain, can we contain him. And no way can we understand him. And if we think we've begun to understand and control, we can be sure we haven't actually wrangled God. We've wrangled our idol of God or who we think God is, and not who he actually is. So the, this obstacle is faith. I love that prayer that the, um, that the disciples pray um, when they're unable to heal someone that they bring to Jesus. They say, well, in that case, they say, increase our faith. And then with the father who has the son that keeps trying to self-harm and his apostles weren't able to drive him out, he comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, if you can do anything, would you please do something here? And Jesus says, if I can, if I can, Anything is possible for him who has faith. And the man replies, and this is my prayer. Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. I was just hearing, uh, I was sharing with another priest who has been more intentional about praying with people for healing. And uh, he gets called to the hospital. He's not feeling super well disposed um, he had had a long day. It's his day off. He had just been at a fundraiser that had already kind of ruined his day off, and he goes in and um, he, he finds out the person had been anointed just the day before, so really not essential for him to come and do an anointing. And he he goes and does the anointing anyway. And then after um, he after the anointing, he turns to the wife of this um, younger gentleman. And the daughter, and he says, "You know, I didn't come to anoint your husband. I came to pray for healing." And that was um, that was so powerful because he really just wasn't feeling it, right? He just wasn't well disposed. He didn't really want to be there, but at the beckoning of this nurse who had faith even though her faith had been questioned because she had seen so many people come in with similar circumstances and die even though she had prayed so many had died but she insisted she and she asked this priest please come and pray so even in whatever struggling faith she had even whatever struggling faith he had he prayed for 5 or 10 minutes nothing dramatic happened in the moment but the wife would share later that she felt an Overwhelming sense of peace enter that room and enter her heart. And lo and behold, he did not die that night, and he did not die the day after. In fact, he continued to make gradual improvement. He was then being moved out of the ICU into a normal room, and as far as I know, he's alive and well. And the nurse, she can look at the chart and she can say, it doesn't make sense. Everything was pointing to his death imminent death, and right at this time when you came, everything following that moment was a gradual improvement. It does not make sense. So even if we struggle to believe in the power of miracles or whatever else the Lord can do, we can at least make that prayer our own. Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. So I'd like us to just renounce any spirit of disbelief, lack of faith, and ask for an outpouring of faith, okay? So, Jesus, in your name. Jesus in your name. I renounce my unbelief. I renounce my unbelief. Spirit of disbelief. Spirit of disbelief. I command you to leave me. I command you to leave me. In the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ. Spirit of faith. Of faith. I, welcome you now into my heart. I welcome you now into my heart. Jesus, I do believe. Help my unbelief. These are such powerful prayers that we're doing in a relatively short amount of time. And like all of them, they will very likely need to be renewed because. We're not just alone fighting this battle against ourselves, right? There are real enemies, first and foremost Satan, and all of his companion spirits who are always looking for ways to find the weaknesses in our armor, to then really, usually starting with discouragement or with doubt, plant a seed that then leads to a general anxiety, a general depression, which eventually leads to despair and total lack of faith, right? We have real enemies, and so we need to renew our commitment to faith, to surrender, to forgiveness, and to repentance all the time, probably every single day. And we need to have ways that we build it into our rhythm, which we'll talk about in a later talk. The last obstacle um, that, is a, that is preventing the Holy Spirit from doing what he wants in our lives and in our prayer, is because we're just not giving him any time. We're not giving God any time, particularly time in silence. Silence is a magnifier for everything that is within us, and especially a magnifier for the voice of God. How many people, let's say of Catholics, would you say have silent time of prayer? Not where they're saying our fathers, Hail Marys, mentally, like externally they're silence, but they're just praying the, the, the rosary, which is a powerful prayer, don't get me wrong. How many Catholics would you say have this kind of silence built into their daily routine? Come hell or high water, they are spending 5, 10, 15, 30 minutes of silence every day. I don't have any statistics but I would venture to guess it's probably 1%. 1%. And even with this pretty notable lack of silence and an interior life, the church still bears a tremendous amount of fruit. So imagine if we had a church full of Catholics that give God and the Holy Spirit time and space in silence to really speak to their hearts. I talked to a different woman um, who has a very powerful healing ministry and I was just so curious. I'm like, how many people would you say out of 10 come away with healing? And, you know, I was thinking, you know, two, three out of 10. She's like, you know, I was actually just thinking about this recently. I'd say about eight or nine out of 10. I'm like, what? Eight or nine out of 10. I'm lucky to, I'm lucky to see one out of 10. And so I asked her, like, how do you do that? And she's like, well, you're not going to like my answer, but you have to learn how to hear God's voice. Are we convicted that in every moment God is speaking to us? Every moment, not just in critical moments, but in every moment the word is speaking to us. The Holy Spirit is inspiring us and filling us. God is loving us here in this moment. And that's why I try to begin my own prayer time, not by doing more stuff, but calling to mind God is already here. He's already loving me. And what he is doing is way more important than anything I'm going to do in this time. What a relief, again, because, again, we place this burden. I have to do this. I have to do that in my prayer time. And then once I complete this number of devotionals and things like that, then I've had good prayer time. No, the Holy Spirit is the protagonist of our prayer. And so I hope you'll join me in desiring and saying, Jesus, I want to hear you more clearly. I want to hear you more clearly. And this ties up with the idea of faith. How do you spell faith? R. I-S-K. Risk. Risk. Because God is always speaking to us, but we easily dismiss it because it makes us uncomfortable. I think he's actually asking me to talk to that person. I think he's telling me to call this person. I think he's asking me to do this, but I really don't want to, so I'm going to pretend that that's definitely not God's voice, and so I'm doing something else, right? Unless we are attentive and listening in silence and then acting upon what we believe is the voice of God we're not going to be able to hear him clearly. But the more we are generous with God, even at the possibility of looking like a fool and embarrassing ourselves, the more we're going to be in tune with his Holy Spirit who is speaking all the time. And again, our role as catechists, as teachers, is to really be a vessel of the Holy Spirit for those that have been entrusted to our care so that they can then be caught with fire of the Holy Spirit I didn't mention, I didn't quote the document too much, but it mentions multiple times Paul's letter to the Corinthians and the charisms of the Holy Spirit. A charism is distinct from a natural ability because it has a supernatural efficacy, something that goes beyond what you would expect with someone Someone that's a naturally a good teacher compared to someone that has the charism of teaching really operating out of that. There's, it's such... An incredible difference because over here in the natural teaching the students might learn the material but over here they will learn it with greater efficacy and it will bear fruit in their relationship with God. It will lead them to a deeper relationship with God. So I have already spoken for a long time so I am going to cut it off here and we can continue our discussion on what it would mean now that I'm predisposing myself to receive more of the Holy Spirit what that would mean in a lifestyle that's centered upon the Holy Spirit that can then be efficacious in the classroom and outside of the classroom so let's pray in conclusion in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit amen Jesus you are so much more Jesus, we desire more. Our boxes are so small, and you are so much bigger. Jesus, I ask you to flood us with more of your Holy Spirit, more of your fire, and kindle in these hearts right now an outpouring of your fire, the fire of the Holy Spirit as it rained down upon the apostles in Pentecost. Come, Holy Spirit, and kindle a fire so that we might be vessels of fire for those around us. Burn away all sadness, all discouragement, all anxiety, all depression, all obstacles to your love, all unforgiveness, all sinfulness, all lack of faith. Anything that is a hindrance to you, burn it all away and let the walls come down now in the name of Jesus Christ. Wash us clean now, Jesus, by your precious blood. And fill us now with new fire, the fire of love, of joy, of peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, generosity, and self-control. And may Almighty God bless you and keep you through the Immaculate Heart of Mary in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.